Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, May the 19th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. It doesn't take very long for truisms to solidify into overused cliches in Irish politics. And top of that particular list at the moment is the observation that we know we're coming out of the COVID pandemic because the housing crisis has returned to its prominent position in the public consciousness. But one of the things about cliches is that they do tend to be true. And the scramble in recent days by the government to address concerns over investment funds snapping up entire housing estates at the expense of home homeowners only goes to show how potent that issue remains. To discuss some of this, I'm joined by Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray from our political staff, and I'm delighted to welcome back Kevin Cunningham, statistician, political scientist, and general thoughtful person on political trends and political affairs. You're all very welcome. Jennifer, first, we had this announcement from the government last night on this issue. Uh, What does it entail? Yeah, so after much toing and froing over the last couple of um, weeks and days, uh, we finally had the announcement from government last night in relation to housing. So they had two cabinet meetings yesterday. The first one was other business and the second one was in the evening specifically on housing. And effectively what they announced afterwards was a move to clamp down on bulk buying of new homes. Um, I suppose one of the headline measures was an increased stamp duty of 10% uh, on multiple purchases. Um, and That will go to the doll today. Um, to be approved, uh, which will come into effect then, I believe, from tomorrow or from midnight tonight onwards, much like a budget measure. Um, so that was one of the first measures that was announced by the Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue. Um, and obviously, when it comes to this specific rate, we are talking about bulk buyers. We are talking about any purchase above 10 houses within a 12-month period. Um, apartments will be exempt from that higher rate, as will purchases by local authorities uh, and approved housing bodies and the housing agency. Uh, so that was the first thing. The second issue was in relation to a circular, which was due to go out last night to local authorities. And that circular basically said that effectively bulk buying would be prohibited um, and that um, when a developer of more than five units goes into an agreement with a local authority, uh, they must stipulate that the sales would be limited to individual buyers. Um, the third element of this uh, hasn't come to pass yet. Uh, Dara O'Brien, the Minister for Housing, said he would um, include this as part of forthcoming legislation in the Affordable Housing Bill. And effectively what that is, is a pledge that or a stipulation that a local authority will designate a certain number of houses in a development um, for owner-occupier and first-time buyers. Um, now, There were reports over the weekend about this being 50% and 70% and 80% blocked off in a development for first-time buyers. Specifically, what we learned yesterday was that um, it's owner-occupiers as well as first-time buyers. And also that that figure that was being kind of uh, very much touted uh, in the media and elsewhere uh, is might, might not necessarily be so. So what's actually happened is that he plans to give local authorities the um, freedom or the discretion to choose any figure between zero to 50% um, designated, like I said, for those buyers, owner occupiers and, and first-time buyers. And there's been a bit of criticism of this because, of course, if you put the figure zero percent in there, doesn't that give you the leeway to effectively not have to designate any such space for 
these buyers um and it wasn't quite the way it was 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 touted i suppose and i can go into some of the the reaction to to those measures if you like and and maybe do that in a sec. Just say there, there, there's an awful lot in there, and you've laid it out very very clearly. And and thanks. There's some kind of bizarre debates going on over the weekend about whether you know first time buyers be privileged over other owner occupiers, and what about people who are trading up? Even kind of suggestions that if you were separated or divorced, you might get the same status as a first time buyer. It was all getting into some pretty weird bits of social engineering there. But I mean, just to go through kind of the 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 three key points there. The one, the immediate one, is the stamp duty. The other ones are much more long term, and we know for things like. Uh, you know, co-living planning permissions. That is one thing to sort of tell tell local authorities that they can't permit them anymore. It's quite an, another thing for that to wash through the lengthy planning system and you can still keep doing this stuff for years to come. But the 10%, there's been criticism of the 10%. I heard Pascal Donoghue uh, defending it this morning. It's, it's 17% in the UK and they actually pushed that up because they found that 15% was not enough as a deterrence. So is there not any concern that 10% just isn't enough given the um, the attractiveness of this particular activity for these phones? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, with your, the, the, the line from the opposition is that if you're going to bring in a measure like this, you shouldn't do a half measure. You should go full hog and make it punitive enough that these funds will not be attracted to buying, book buying um, uh, these houses in, in the various estates that we've we've seen over the last number of years. So what Sinn Féin have said is that it should be above 15%. And they gave the exact same example that you did, which is that in Britain, they set it at 15 and then they had to go higher again because it wasn't viewed as being punitive enough and it wasn't viewed as being um, effective. Um, and... This was put to Pascal Donoghue last night during a press conference after the cabinet meeting. And he didn't go into a great amount of detail is what I will say. He said that he'd spoken to his officials and they had made it clear that this would be a significant enough hike to be a deterrent. Um, he was kind of pressed a little bit later on about, you know, what exactly did those government officials outline and would he publish that advice so people could see? And, and he said effectively, I think that he would. Um, so, I mean, like you say, the fear is that it's just not enough, that these funds are not short of cash, obviously. And if you're talking about a 10% um, stamp duty, higher rate, perhaps it's just it doesn't scratch the surface. Yeah, I mean, I think Pascal Donoghue had finessed his defence a bit by the time he went on the radio this morning and he was pointing to certain differences in the in the UK system, you know, certain very kind of derogations and things which 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 don't apply in Ireland. But the proof will be the proof will be in the pudding of all that, Pat. But um, this kind of making it up on the hoof is never really a good sign, is it? It's a sign of 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 panic at the top. And very often we know that these kinds of interventions in the property market on this kind of basis have all kinds of unforeseen consequences as well. Yeah, well, first of all, there is panic. I mean, you're you're right that it is driven by panic and there is something approaching panic at the top of government about this because they're getting such political heat uh, on it and they're getting such political heat on it because it's an issue that is, you know, that their TDs are being made keenly aware of on the ground and that has been pursued by uh, by the media as we've discussed this before, as COVID has, uh, as COVID has receded, the housing crisis has shuffled in fairly quickly to uh, to fill the gap in terms of the uh, in terms of the political agenda, and any measures that are pulled together in haste are always likely to be cobbled together. And as you point out, this is a mixture. The package announced last night, of which we'll hear more details today, is uh, is a mixture of immediate measures such as the stamp duty one, and then longer term ones that apply to. 
the planning process, but the planning process deals with the future. And in many cases, it deals with the far off distant future because you're making rules for things that are going to be uh, that it's going to take years to come into uh, years to come into effect and to have an effect on the uh, on the housing market as it is now. So, you know, in some respects, the governments, because of the nature of the the planning process and the great time lag that it takes between the decision to build houses and the turning of the key in the door, the turning of the keys in the doors of those houses are apartments because that great time lag, then policy instruments that are availed of by government don't have uh, immediate effects. And that's, you know, simply an inescapable uh, an inescapable fact about this area. Kevin, I'll bring you in. Uh, Pat talks about panic at the highest levels of government. Um, is that panic driven by what opinion polls, I know you were writing about opinion polls um, run last weekend, tell them about what the electorate and particularly younger voters think of all this? I don't know if it, if it's driven by it, but it should be, right? Because at the end of the day, this is a highly salient, highly important issue for a substantial proportion of the population. So, you know, over the past two or three years, basically tracked what people think to be the most important issue. We asked an open-ended question what people think. And it's interesting that you can go through various different scandals, like, say, the Garda Garda McCabe one, or or even um, the repeal of the eighth referendum, and those issues only really peak around two or three percent of the public actually mentioning those those issues as important. But in the last electoral cycle, housing was consistently thirty eight to forty percent around that marker. So. It's clearly an issue that even when it's not in the headlines is something for which people feel relatively quite strongly about. Um, the latest tracker we have uh, with, with the Mail on Sunday uh, talks, it shows it right back at where it was at the last general election as, as a prominent issue. And it's it's quite interesting because at the same time, this is happening when the government's showing in relation to the pandemic is actually much better. I can talk about those figures slightly separately, but it's interesting how this housing issue is really damaging them electorally. And and I think this is why, this is because it's, I think it's more of an emotive issue for a subsa- substan- substantial proportion of the population. Um, Two thirds of the population who, who don't own their own home believing their standard to be worse than that of their parents' generation. Um, 83% of renters feeling insecure in their housing needs compared to, say, 4% of those that own their own home. The numbers are particularly stark uh, on this particular issue. Um, and it's clearly an issue that is felt among a certain generation, perhaps. And it's it's interesting as well as how it's kind of transpiring into government support. Like in the last uh, five months, uh, just to take the last five months, the, the government parties have fallen uh, in support among renters. So I'm just talking about Fianna Fáil plus Fianna Gael. In January, they're 31 percent. In February, is 29. March, they're 27 uh, April, they're 21%. And now in the latest poll, they're 18% being four plus Finnegale among renters. So it's definitely something where they're just continually falling. And it's not just Sinn Féin that's making a lot of uh, gains in this area. It's now the Social Democrats. And maybe this is because of, you know, we, we, it's been talked about before about how, uh, you know, the, the, the real estate investment trust buying up properties in 
middle class homes in Kildare, you know, are suddenly having uh, ramifications among the broader political spectrum. And maybe that's how, you know, the Social Democrats are starting to make gains when for a long time Sinn Féin have probably made gains on this particular issue, but it hasn't had the same level of prominence, perhaps. And I, and I only say that because years ago, I'm not going to mention the names or anything, but I, I did, you know, present this sort of data to pretty senior um, political operatives and uh, it, w- it simply wasn't believed um, back in around 2017 as, as a prominent issue. It's just, it was queried, the poll was queried, and it was suggested that housing homeless couldn't be the most important issue back then. But obviously, I think the most recent general election shows how sometimes these issues can suddenly become particularly prominent and actually perhaps, coming back to your question, uh, perhaps that's why uh, there's a little bit more urgency because they saw what happened uh, at the last general election, I guess. It's a shame you can't tell us who you were talking to then, but can I just plug you a little bit on that and say, why do you think they didn't believe it? What was there not to believe? Well, there was a perception that uh, health was always the most important issue. Um, and I don't know whether this is just something that, you know, and include myself and there's people who are involved in political discourse might be just that little bit disconnected from what's happening in the general public. You know, we, we come back to that question of, uh, I think it's the, the, the mystery of Irish politics today, which is how did Sinn Féin in late December, early January, you know, rise so quickly? How, like, how did that suddenly happen out of nowhere? Um, and maybe we must also ask, why did we not believe it? How do we not have a have an understanding of it? Um, I, I do a lot of public opinion polls following various different issues. And you see how sometimes some issues are far more popular among the general public and yet are more heavily debated um, in sort of populist ways within within politics. So the mandatory quarantine thing is one example, which is just enormous support before and after all the problems. And uh, United Ireland is, on the other hand, not actually that sort of thing that's, that's that popular, yet there's universal, uh, you know, support for that particular issue. It's just, I sometimes wonder uh, in myself, as, as disconnected as I am personally, whether we're all a little bit disconnected from what's going on in politics, um, in, in the public more generally. Um, and, you know, I just think about one of the biggest reasons a lot of people talk about why uh, people voted for Sinn Féin and income and housing and lots of stuff is very important. But probably the biggest thing is is the populist element of politics in Ireland. Um you know, three quarters of Sinn Féin voters believing that most politicians don't care about the people. Uh, and that might not surprise people, I guess, if you think about assuming Sinn Féin's a very populist party. But uh, a third of the Fianna Gael's vote also believe that. And 39% of the Fianna Fáil vote believe that. So there's substantial subsets of the of of our electorate that are, just like in any other country, quite disaffected with politics more generally. Um, and I think that's you know, something that maybe we all uh, need to be wary of in, in, in considering the, the dynamics that might play out in an issue like housing, for which, you know, as I said, 40% of the public sort of emphasising that this is the most important issue for them. Jennifer, can I ask you about another aspect of this, which we, we mentioned actually on last Wednesday's podcast as well, which was the, the fact that there is a government commitment, or in fact a commitment on behalf of the, the, the state in legislation to addressing climate change and environmental issues and part of that involves building at a higher density in in urban areas uh, cutting back on commuter and suburban sprawl which has cars streaming in and out of our urban centres all the time 
But there is a distinction now um, following these these changes yesterday between what these funds can do for houses and what these funds can do for apartments. And the rationale given for that is that you just can't build apartment blocks um, without these funds. That's the rationale given by by, by Pascal Donoghue. But isn't the reality of that then that, I mean, and I know I live relatively close to Dublin city centre, any of the private um, residential developments I see anywhere near me are in the form of apartments. So they are all going to be privately held and block rented at incredibly high rents, it seems to me. And that has all kinds of not just environmental, but social impacts as well. And seems to go back to a really antiquated notion that apartments are for transient people and houses are for families. Yeah. And this came up at the press conference last night as well. Um, You know, it's effectively free season for the funds when it comes to apartments now. And if you look at what the majority of building is in relation to somewhere like Dublin or even other regional cities, we're talking about apartments. So if you have funds coming in, I mean, you don't have to really be a genius to figure out they're coming in, sweeping up all these apartments um, and then putting them back onto the market at a very, very high rent. Um, You're effectively driving people who may have sought to live near the city centre or in the city centre, around the city, away from their inter-commuter belt areas um, where they could potentially afford somewhere. Um, And that has a whole range of implications. You know, it makes, you know, this idea, I heard the Fine Gael, uh, Dublin Bay South, um, by-election candidate James Gagan talking about, you know, a 15-minute city and all this kind of stuff. Sort of blows that out of the water a little bit. Um, And, you know, there's implications as well, I suppose, in terms of, like, if you're talking about the Green Party, about commuting, about emissions. Um, You know, it's environmental. It's not just housing. It has a whole range of knock-on implications. And I think the decision was made in government that, you know, on balance, if they did include apartments within the, the stamp duty changes, that it would affect these housing supplies um, in such a way that would damage their um, targets that they have set out over the next couple of years. But I, I think that this, when we look at how this develops over today and over the coming days, this problem or this issue, this part of the plan will become one of the most controversial parts because of what it does to people's chances of living in the city or, or, or living near where they, where they work. I mean, I should say that when I, when I say that they're transient because they'll be renting from these, from these funds, but part of the reason for that is because tenants in Ireland don't necessarily have the same rights that they have in, in other countries and not just in social democratic countries in Sweden, but also actually in American cities as well, levels of rent control and protection for tenants, which don't exist here. Um, is this likely, or is this a possible flashpoint within the government? The Greens have been making unhappy noises. Yeah, um, so we know that all the all three Green ministers raised issues about this at cabinet. Um, you know, in relation to, I think the biggest issue is what we talked about: uh, apartments and them being not included, and and what that does to the market, and what that does to people's um, ownership ambitions. Um, and you know, from what I hear, those concerns were somewhat addressed. But I think this is something that we will hear more of because the Green Party will come under pressure, not only from the media, but also from their own supporters about um, the impact that this has. And I think we'll see how that plays out today. But certainly from what I heard last night, there was a great deal of tension um, within within Cabinet. I think this is 
you know, this may be one of the fault lines in it. And we spoke earlier about how these things are cobbled, uh, you know, how the package of measures is cobbled together under great time pressure and also political pressure. And what often happens with a package of measures like that is you find once they are subjected to the sort of scrutiny that politics and media are supposed to subject them to, that uh, bits of them begin to peel off. So as to whether the Green Party leadership can square off its own TDs on the issue, I think that would be one of the stories that we are, you know, trying to get to the bottom of today. Um, I suspect we shall know uh, fairly quickly. We know that, um, you know, that housing policy was one of the great obstacles to get over, uh, to get the Green Party to agree uh, to enter government in the first place uh, a year ago. And we know that TDs uh, like NASA Hurrigan have uh, have very strong views on this. So it would be interesting to see what she says um, about the, um, uh, about this package. There is, on, on, on the related point, there is, I know, great there's great nervousness about uh, interfering in the housing market in the Department of Finance. Part of that is, you know, the scars of the property and financial collapse in uh, in 2008, 2012, 13. And, you know, they are very reluctant to do the sort of things that they are doing as part of this package. And I suppose the fact that they're doing them is a measure of their judgment of the extent of the political crisis that the government uh, faces on, uh, on this issue. They are very nervous, uh, I know, about scaring off the funds from any investment in uh, in Irish property, they are content to try and corral them into that area of uh, of mainly urban apartments. But they're very worried about that taking the funds out of the Irish property market altogether will actually lead to a smaller supply. And it's the lack of supply or the 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 paucity of the supply of all types of accommodation that is. The real funds at Erigo, Origo of this, of this problem in the first place. And there is a worry. And I think Pascal Donahue averred to it in some of the interviews that he gave this morning that actually you take the funds out of the, uh, you take the funds out of the housing market, you take the funds out of the apartment uh, market that, uh, that it turns out to be counterproductive. And where he's coming from on that is that, you know, if you look back to the time we were building, you know, 80,000 houses and apartments every year. The banks were financing all of that now, but because, uh, banks were financing all of it then. But the banks lending for property investment has been drastically scaled back for obvious reasons after what happened the last time. And so developers have to look to other sources of finance to, uh, to complete these, um, you know, to complete projects. And there is a great extent to which I suppose that, you know, the political cleavage on this is that Sinn Féin and many parties on the left want the state to fill that, uh, they want to fill that gap and directly finance uh, many, uh, many new developments. What the government says, on the other hand, is that yes, the state is doing that, but we need the state plus the private sector to, uh, to finance, to finance developments. And if the money isn't coming from the banks, then it has to come from alternative sources.
Yeah, I'll come back to you on this in a second, Kevin, but I do want to go to you on, on, on this particular subject, Jen, because you, you've you been writing about, about this recently. One of the things, and God knows I'm no expert on the economics of housing, but it seems to me is, while clearly supply is the is the fundamental problem in the Irish housing market at the moment, it's not the only one. And also, we actually know from the historical example, which Pat just gave us, that an abundance of supply does not necessarily uh, lead to a decline in uh, in in the cost of housing, because that's certainly not what was happening between 2003 and 2007 or thereabouts. And we hear these kind of horror stories and can actually see it to some extent of some of these funds demanding exorbitant rents for these brand new apartments and buildings, not getting them and quite content to sit on them and uh, and leave them empty, which is a sign that the market doesn't perhaps work in the very simple way that, um, that Pascal Donoghue was, was, was describing it. But you wrote about the opposition and specifically more about Sinn Féin and what they were proposing. And as Pat says, their, um, their solution to this problem is quite different. It, got, it, it doesn't have to do with the private sector, although they don't rule out the position of the private sector. It's a massive investment of state funds. Um, what's wrong with that? Well, I don't think there's what's wrong with that. Well, firstly, I'm not a housing expert and I think that's been very much pointed out over the last couple of days. No, I'm just kidding. Um, well, you know, what I was seeking to do with that piece was basically to talk to people who work within, when I say within the system, I'm not talking about people who are out in the media every day. I'm talking about people who are inside the various agencies, the bodies who deal with local authorities, um, who deal with the the finance agencies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to talk to them about if this plan, if, if Sinn Féin got into government and the other opposition parties as well, it wasn't just Sinn Féin, but of course Sinn Féin is the main opposition party and it's been very strong in housing. Um, if they got into government, here are their plans. What do you think are the pitfalls? Is it as simple as, you know, Sinn Féin say they want to, to deliver 20,000 public homes every year and that prioritises the use of public land. Um, you know, is that feasible? Is that realistic? Uh, and can that be done? Now, when I spoke to Owen O'Brien about it, even he was kind of saying that he acknowledged that COVID-19 has had a really serious effect on the market and on obviously the on construction given the various lockdowns that we've had. And he himself said, we might not get to the 20,000 figure in the first year but we'll catch up in later years. So, you know, I think you were already seeing like it's it's not as black and white even as the plan says themselves. But I suppose of the people who I talked to, um, you know, I asked them about that 20,000 figure and I also asked them, you know, Sinn Féin, so their plan is in relation to affordable houses and affordable rents. And in the Sinn Féin plan, affordable rents will be set between €700 and €900 per month in Dublin and lower elsewhere. Affordable purchases will be set at €230,000 or less in Dublin uh, and lower elsewhere. Um, and then we've, if you're talking about the eligibility uh, for uh, affordable housing, you're looking at a gross income of 55,000 for a single person and 85,000 euro for a couple, which will be reviewed annually because there has been a bit of criticism that that could leave out two nurses, two guards, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, I mean, the people who I spoke to, they raised a number of concerns about achieving this 20,000 figure and achieving those rents and achieving those those sums. And one of them was that it's not exactly clear in the Sinn Féin plan how many of those homes will be built from scratch. And building from scratch is slower, riskier, more complicated for local authorities and housing bodies in comparison to buying from a private developer. Um, a couple of people mentioned to me that focusing the, not the entire stock, but bringing it entirely almost into a public 
realm carries a huge risk for local authorities. Um, another issue that was uh, put to my attention was that when we talk about local authorities using all their public land, not every local authority has a great swathe of public land available. And if they do, a lot of that land has debt attached to it. Um, although uh, different people I spoke to had different views about how important this was. One person said to me, it's not beyond the realms of state to just pay that off. But that's still state debt, um, effectively. Um, and then there's concerns about what kind of building are we talking about here? If we're talking about higher density units like apartment blocks, obviously they're much more expensive to build. We've seen that in construction costs. Um, and then if we're talking about construction costs and building costs, they're also considered to still be too high. So th- they were some of the the main things. That, uh, one of the more interesting points that I thought was around um, a plan that Ono Brin has talked about um, when it comes to getting this €230,000 affordable home. So it will be a leasehold. It won't be a freehold. So what it means is you buy that property, you own that property, that's your house, but the council owns the land and they have a sale over the future, say, they have a sale over the future sale of the property. And the reason why that is is because there is concern that if you bought a house for 230000 or whatever, um, you're the first purchaser what's to stop you from selling that on and that house from moving out of the affordable market and then into the other market, which we know um, is a problem that people can't afford. So that's the that's the point of that. But I suppose the critics of that plan would say, who would want to buy a house and not effectively be able to sell it or I suppose or pass it on to their kids? Where Ono Brin says, you can extend it, you can amend it, you can pass it to your kids, they can pass it to their kids. Um, but the land on which the house rests is not your property. Um, and you know, I think p- different people have different views on that. So if I could, I think that's kind of summing up basically what I was told. Um, and I think overall, when it comes to their figures, finally, their uh, six billion, etc., um, in relation to how how they would fund it, how they would pay for it, most people agreed that those figures stack up. And technically, it's doable. But we're talking about living in a world in which everything goes right. That that raises a very interesting question, which I'd like to put to you, Kevin. Um, um, poor old Pat always gets a terrible hard time on Twitter, and he was given a hard time since our podcast last week. By it was suggested that he was suggesting that, and I quote, "Only people uh, who own property have a stake in society." Uh, I should say that Pat vehemently denies that, and on his behalf, this podcast. Uh, Pat, it either. Pat, Pat that might right, Pat? address this uh, himself shortly, but go ahead with Kevin. I'll I'll I'll, I'll bring you back in in a second. <laughs> in a second, that Pat. But I am interested, Kevin, and you have a um, a background in in British politics as well, where I think we've we've seen this in many ways down the years of the role of home ownership and the ideology of the importance of home ownership versus renting in party politics. I mean, the classic example which I, I think of is Margaret Thatcher's massive program of the sale of council houses to the uh, to the people who lived in them in the 1980s, which many people thought was a major contributory factor to the kind of swell in kind of in a shift, in fact, from a certain kind of traditional working class vote around London uh, from Labour and towards the Tories. And we've seen other examples of that still. And it's not unusual, is it, for centre-right parties in particular to see homeowners ownership as a way of bolstering or increasing their support. Yeah, I mean, they often say that, you know, home ownership and religion are probably the two things that sustain support for the right, particularly among uh, what we would normally think of as working class voters. So, well, I think to that extent, although maybe phrased slightly differently, I think Pat's right uh, that there is 
uh, this relationship between home ownership, and it's increasingly the case uh, in Britain today, as you, as you mentioned. You know, if you were to look at the electoral geography of the UK, it's driven almost entirely by home ownership. And you know, there's this is something that's happening in lots of different countries where the old uh, way of looking at politics and society is breaking down, where you know the so-called working-class vote is now not as homogenous. It isn't everyone working, you know, hundreds of people working in a factory on the same conditions and relatively insecure jobs. Um, nowadays, you know, the electrician, say, who's nominally a, a working class voter, probably has better conditions, better pay and better security than someone who would otherwise be in a, in a kind of more middle class um, uh, background. So as a consequence of that, you know, home ownership and age, naturally enough, because a lot of these sorts of changes happened in the 70s and 80s and started to stop uh, building um, council houses and that sort of stuff. Um, those sorts of things have now influenced how politics is certainly in Britain, uh, you know, in in the UK, they think it, it's completely stacked against the, the Labour Party in terms of demographics, because there's a hell of a lot more homeowners than there are renters. Um, and also geographically, the renters are obviously more concentrated in different uh, areas. So there's a natural disadvantage to be on the side of the, the renter um, in electoral politics. But, you know, if we come back to the, the Irish context, you can see how, you know, some of these issues can be resolved. Like right now, the government isn't particularly popular. And that seems to be a lot to do with the, the housing crisis because, you know, its popularity in relation to handling the pandemic has completely changed in the last month. Um, you know, uh, when people are asked about the management of the road out of the vaccine, um, last month, uh, 22% said they're good or very good. And this month, it's 51%. So it's, it's a completely different picture. And the government isn't benefiting from that. And that is because of this housing thing and exactly what you're mentioning here, these kind of inherent demographic features of if you don't own your own home, it's not, I'm not really sure if it's about having a stake in society, but there's also kind of economic ramifications of not owning your own home as well. You know, there's the fact that you're paying rent not to own something as house prices go up, you know, if you own your own home, then that's going to have a very different impact on your your personal, you know, balance sheet than if if, if you don't. Uh, so I think those sorts of things are probably particularly uh, relevant in relation to this particular issue. That's true, isn't it, Pat? And you, I think you want to um, wanted to make that point as well. Yeah, I think so. <clears throat> I mean, I mean, firstly, I'm um, I'm indebted to, you, uh, of course, and you you watch Twitter more closely than uh, than I do, so I'm indebted to you for pointing out this latest tirade of abuse that was directed against me, and just for. Clarity. Um, I, I uh, perhaps foolishly went to the bother of going back and listening to what it was exactly I had uh, said, because um, uh, of course you can never be sure when you that you haven't said something uh, immensely stupid in the course of <laughs> in the course of our weekly ramblings. But actually, what I said was that you know that property owners do feel they have a stake in, uh, in, in society. And that has political ramifications, uh, of course. I wouldn't for a moment suggest that only property owners, which is, I think, what the tweeter uh, was suggesting, uh, um, have a has have a stake in uh, in society. Indeed, the the tweeter I note uh, has just had a, a piece published in the New York uh, in the New Yorker 
magazine, but uh, perhaps he's better at writing than he is at uh, at listening. But anyway, that's that's the opinion there. We shouldn't we moving shouldn't, on, moving uh, on. We shouldn't <laughs> uh, distract ourselves too much with that. I think the idea that. Um, uh, that that Kevin articulates there is one that has been seen, as he says, in recent elections in the UK, where what you see is the decline of social class as a predictor of political allegiance and the rise of age and home ownership and cultural values as perhaps better predictors of political behaviour and voting choice uh, in in many respects. And I think that's kind of related to what we're talking about um, with regard to the housing issue and how it may apply to politics here, in that there isn't just one housing issue. So if you make, uh, you know, if, 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 if you make, and, and we saw, you know, some... Uh, you know, some outworkings of this in the debates in recent days when firstly it was uh, it was suggested that the government would make changes solely to the advantage of first-time buyers and the people then who wanted to trade up uh, were saying, well, wait a minute, what, do I, what about us? What about us? And, uh, and this is one of the reasons why the housing issue is so complex for government and how it relates to politics will, I think, be not as straightforward as many people think. And, you know, we might get a chance to look at this in the forthcoming uh, by-election in, in Dublin uh, in Dublin Bay South. You know, it is, it is certainly true that, uh, you know, many of the, the people who own Dublin Bay South, who uh, own their houses in Dublin Bay South, which is one of the most affluent areas uh, in the country with the highest property values, will want their children to be able to, uh, to get on the housing ladder without having to get a massive bailout from the bank of mum and dad. But would they really want that to be achieved by the, uh, you know, by a significant diminishing in the values of their own uh, of their own homes. I mean, if one of the basic problems in the uh, in 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 people affording younger people affording a house is that houses and apartments are simply too expensive, and this is the supply difficulty that we talked about earlier. Then the solution to that is to put more supply on the market and reduce the uh, and re- uh, and therefore reduce the the cost of houses and apartments. But let's see when the doors of Dublin Bay South are knocked upon by canvassers, assuming, uh, assuming that's what happens in the by-election campaign, what the reaction in the ballot box would be to the suggestion that, yes, our policy objective is to knock 25% off the price of your, or the value of your, uh, of your house. So I think it's not as straightforward to say there is one housing issue that plays upon politics in a particular way. It, it, it plays upon politics, I think, in many different ways. Can I add to that, if if that's all right? Just uh, the, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that there are different layers. And there's one layer which you didn't mention there. And I, I'll be honest, I wasn't as aware of it until literally a discussion with my, my students about the issue thinking more generally. And uh, it's 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 also people who are struggling to even get on, the, get on the rental ladder. I mean, I noticed in the polls that when I asked people what their renting status is, there's a lot of people now a much larger number of people who are in the other category. They're actually living with their parents and that sort of stuff. And what following on from this discussion that I had with my class, discovering various different features of it, I subsequently did a question 
uh, based on what they're saying, uh, among the general public, asking people whether they're considering emigrating. Um, and a very nice, I mean, you know, I don't know how it compares with previous years, and I don't know to, to what extent what people consider will actually happen, but, you know, it was around 25% of people under 35 were considering emigrating in the next 12 months. Um, and that just reflects what, you know, if it means that to move out from mum and dad, you have to actually go to another country. Um, that's another sort of level to it. Obviously, you know, as Irish people, we've always uh, emigrated for, for, for good and bad reasons. But um, I just I wonder whether that's another dynamic to it uh, among that kind of youngest generation of people coming out of college in particular. Which um, is another another la- layer to it as well. Jen, it was interesting. Um, Dublin Bay South. We have we have a couple of declared candidates. The most prominent one, I suppose, is the Fine Gael candidate because that was the biggest party in the constituency at the last election, and he was probably the front runner in this by election. James Gagan is a sort of a, a a blue blood among blue shirts, I suppose you could say. With there's uh, barely a member of his family who hasn't sat at the Supreme Court, as far as I can see. Um, and I was interested that at his sort of his 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 maiden press conference. He was asked where he got his mortgage from, and did the bank of mom and dad play a play a role in it? That was a kind of a that's a change in tone, I think. Yeah, and actually, I think Pat could probably speak better to this because he was uh, there. But from what I could uh, see myself, um, there's a little bit of coyness there, maybe in answering that question. Um, I know he was also asked about, you know, what he considered to be an affordable house. Um, really interesting questions. I think he said he would consider an affordable house to be around three hundred thousand. Euro and he's also kind of giving out about the affordability and um, the build to rent market. Uh, and you know what? I think that actually all of the candidates in this by election will be asked the exact same questions because this is the 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 big topic. This is the the big issue. Obviously, alongside the pandemic, of course. But um, I think we'll find all of the candidates being asked that. And it's interesting that you say that James Gagan, Finnegal James Gagan, will probably is probably the the front runner because I. I do agree. It's not a certainty that he is the front runner. You know, the quota is 50%. If you take what Fine Gael won um, in last year's general election between their two candidates, it was 28% of first preference votes. There's no guarantee that the appeal that those two candidates, Owen Murphy and Kay O'Connell, had to their individual constituents will translate for James Gagan. He doesn't have the same profile, obviously. And... Uh, as Kate O'Connell said on the radio, or was it, I think it was Kate O'Connell said it was un- untested. Um, and I just think it's very far from certain that he is the front runner. Having said that, it is an area in which there is a massive Fine Gael vote and that will come through. But I think Pat pointed out before on one of, on one of our previous podcasts that the devil is in the detail and what we will be watching so carefully will be the transfers. Where do the transfers go? Do they go between coalition parties? Do they go left to left? Um, how does it pan out? And it, it will be fascinating. What do you think, Pat? Early early thoughts. We're still waiting for some pretty important candidacies to be declared. Sure, we still don't have a full uh, slate of candidates. We still don't have a date, though the very much a feeling uh, at the top of Fine Gael is that it is likely to be in, uh, in, in early July. I certainly think they will want it before the August um, uh, before the August break, which have been coming back and having it in September, October, even November. And uh, uh, so I think we can expect it in uh, in July. I think Jen is right. Obviously, in a by-election, um, uh, in a by-election, 
transfers. The, 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 the arithmetic, we've discussed this before, the arithmetic works in a completely different way and therefore the importance of transfers will be, uh, will be huge. So James Gagan in the normal course of events, in the course of in, in a general election, um, you know, wouldn't need to reach out beyond that Fine Gael tribe, in, uh, in, which is pretty numerous in this particular constituency. But to win this seat, he will. And I think, you know, what we've seen from the early skirmishing, certainly, and from that press conference um, uh, to which you referred, that uh, housing will be the issue in the campaign. What I'll really be looking for is to see how it is reflected in the way people vote to the extent that we can, uh, to the extent that we can probe that. So it will certainly be, and all the candidates will be asked, what is their housing housing status? How long have they rented for? Have they ever lived in a basement kip in rat mines with 14 awfully men uh, in the room next door? Or, you know, have they glided into uh, an apartment provided by their parents in in Balls Bridge? They'll all be asked this and uh, just as, uh, just as James Gagan will. But how that issue and the stances that they take on it, how they play with the voters, I think that's what will be really interesting to look at in this by-election. Kevin, can I ask for your thoughts on this? I mean, one of the things I suppose is that in this constituency, the three parties that now make up the government probably got somewhere north of 60%, 65% to 70% of the overall of the overall vote in the constituency. But they're not a coherent ideological or even maybe sort of emotional group. So the question of how much um, how much transfers go between them is very moot, as, as, as Pat says, I think. The trick in an Irish by-election is assembling those transfers. And it could be quite tricky for anybody to do that yeah. in this case, it seems to me. I, I think you're right. I mean, I think uh, there's a whole thing where as coalition partners get together, it increases the likelihood of them transferring. Like there's a lot of labour for Nigel transfers in and around 2016 and so on. Uh, so I think there'll be quite a lot of strong transfer rate between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. Um, so I think Fine Gael will get that Fianna Fáil vote. The Green Party are probably going to decline significantly from that election. There is this kind of liberal, sock dem, Labour, Green vote in that constituency, which I think if that gets ahead of, say, the Sinn Féin vote, uh, then it's in contention, whoever the leading candidate of that kind of group is. I think if it ends up with Sinn Féin versus Fine Gael, it might be very difficult for um, Sinn Féin to win because all those kind of liberal votes in Dublin Bay South are affluent you know, greeny kind of labour-y kind of votes. And I think they're more likely to go in the Fine Gael direction. One thing I think is particularly interesting, and I, I know it's one of those things that you, someone like me would always say if you worked in campaigns, is that the, the turnout issue in um, Irish by-elections is generally quite low. Um, I think the turnout in Cork North Central was 30%, Dublin Midwest was 28 27%, something thereabouts. Um, and when, when turnout gets down that low, let's say, I mean, Obviously, Dublin Bay South has favourable demographics for a higher turnout in some respect, but there's a lot of renters who, you know, historically speaking, are less likely to vote. Um, if turnout gets down that low, then the operations, the GOTV and all that sort of stuff actually has a huge impact. And I think that's why something like this uh, might help Sinn Féin to do relatively well, because... You know, when it came to those by-elections they had before the last general election, they were able to concentrate all their resources on Dublin Midwest and did very well in doing so. <clears throat> but um, 
you know, at the expense of anything really going on in any of the other constituencies, which they do particularly poor in, in, in those by-elections. So they might do quite well. They've, a, they've clearly, um, a more top-down system of, of electoral organization, which facilitates that sort of campaign. So, uh, they might benefit from that, especially with the low turnout. Um, and, you know, maybe in July, maybe people will start to go abroad. Maybe people will be, uh, I don't know if we're going to be allowed to, but, you know, maybe people will be less engaged with politics because we'll be finally allowed outside of our houses as well. So it'll be an interesting time, I think. Yeah, there's, there's, there's no question. Nobody's, nobody who listens to this podcast is allowed, is permitted to become less engaged with politics at, at, at any stage at all. And uh, they'll continue to be engaged, I think, right up to the, the, the summer break and maybe even beyond. But we are going to leave it there for today. Listen, thanks very much, Kevin, for joining us. Thanks also to Pat and Jen for being with us. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. We're going to be back very soon indeed. And remember, you can mail us with your thoughts and your questions. I've had some very interesting ones over the last week or so. So thanks for those at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. And until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.